Hey guys, it's good to see all your faces. Welcome to Door of Hope. This morning my name is Ian. Most of you probably know who I am, but if not, I'm a preacher. And that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to get preached. Um, good morning. It's good to see your guys' faces. I, uh, I wanted to, before we get into the text this morning, um, I wanted to just spend a couple of minutes filling everybody in on what's going to be happening in the next 16 weeks. Most of you are probably already aware that Josh has taken uh, a 16-week sabbatical, but then even when he comes back, there's going to be a little bit of, of time before he gets back into the pulpit. And I think it's going to be 19 weeks in total uh, that he will not be in the pulpit. And so when he first announced his sabbatical a couple months back, I started thinking, you know, what are, what are we going to do with those 16 weeks? Uh, I didn't want to just pick, ran- you know, every time I come up here, it's some random sermon that I just sort of you know, choose. I didn't want to do that for 16 weeks, and so my idea was that for the next 16 weeks, we would go through the parables of Jesus. We would stay on a, on a linear thought. We would do the parables of Jesus. There's approximately 40 of them, and so all we had to do was pick 16 of them and then uh, bring them to you one by one. And so we're going to be in the parables for the next 16 weeks. The, the last three weeks that Josh is back but not preaching, I don't know what we're going to do then. So Hold on to your hats. But for the next 16 weeks, we're going to do parables. And then the other thing that I, that I talked to the staff about was, since we're sister churches with, uh, with Northeast, since we're a family of churches, I thought, why not, why not get a couple of those dudes over here too? So you're going to see Josh Wilder and Cameron up here a couple times throughout those 16 weeks. And then uh, I talked to John C. and Pippin to Zion, and those three dudes will be up here. They, they picked a parable that they want to do, and so they're going to be up here at different times throughout the next 16 weeks. So there's going to be a multitude of faces up here, but we're going to be in the parables. We're going to be talking about the things that Jesus talked about, uh, and the parables cover all sorts of categories and, and lessons and, and teachings, and so I think it's going to be a pretty rad time, so y'all should stick around for that. And with that, with the parables, we're going to we're going to launch this parable, uh, this parable study with the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and crack it open to Luke chapter 10. And if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in the, uh, the pew in front of you. I'll give you a minute to, to get your finger on Luke chapter 10 and then cast an eye on verse 25. We're going to read from Luke 10, 25. And I'm going to go down into verse 37. So follow along with me. And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, We shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and said, Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. 
And he came to the man and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And they, he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of this man and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Just bow with me one more, one more time, a quick word. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for all of your gifts. Thank you for another beautiful sunshine morning and blue skies and a cool breeze. Thank you for this building. Thank you for this group of people, this congregation that call this church home. Thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for coming to earth and telling us what it is that we need to know. Thank you for being clear. Thank you for speaking to us in a way that we understand. Thank you for becoming our language. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you may, you may reach people's hearts this morning, that their hearts will be comforted, that they'll be changed, that they'll be transformed, and that they will really learn something from your word this morning. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So one of, the, one of the things that has become really obvious to me since I've become a, a full-time preacher, because I'm still pretty new at this. I've only been doing this for a year and a half, and, and I've been learning a ton. And one of the things that I've, that I've learned that seems to be a truism is that when you're studying any specific text, it's good to get into the details. It's good to look at the story for what it is, and get detailed about that story. And if you've got to break out the commentaries and the, the Greek dictionaries and the Hebrew dictionaries and the Aramaic dictionaries, do it. Do it. It's great. It's great. There's no, there's, you will never reach the depth of any text. So get specific with where you are. But I've also found that a good way for a text to be informed is not only to get into the, the very intimate details of the text itself, but also to back up and look at the surrounding context. Look at where where Jesus is, what's going on, who is he speaking to, is he in Galilee, is he in Jerusalem, is he speaking to Samaritans, is he speaking to Jews, is he speaking to the common folk, is he speaking to leadership in some sort, either, either political leadership or, or religious leadership, what is going on, and it helps to inform what's going on in the specific details, whatever it is that's happening in the, in the big details, the bigger context. And the same is true for this, for this parable here. And I think that if we just back up a few verses, it actually helps us understand what's going on in this parable a little bit more than if we just focused on verses 25 to 37. And so what's going on in, in chapter 10 of Luke, if we just take the chapter, What's happening is Jesus has just sent his disciples out. It says that he sent 70 others out. He sent them in pairs to go ahead of him into every city and place where he himself was going to come. And it says that he gave them power. He told them to do miracles, to heal the sick, to preach, to stay with people, to eat with them, to remain in their homes. And they come back. They come back from this journey in verse 17. And it says that the 70 returned with joy saying to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I was listening to this on the, the audio Bible as I was driving, and by the way, this is just for fun, the new ESV uh, Bible app where you can just listen to it on your phone, the new one 
has a voice that sounds like an Irish woman. And it's just so, it beats James Earl Jones for sure. It's so sick. So I was listening to, to chapter 10 over and over, and it dawned on me as I was listening to it, I was like, wait, this, this scholar in verse 25 that, that sort of appears out of nowhere or seems to appear out of nowhere and comes to Jesus to test him, we get a little bit of information about why maybe he had this attitude if we, if we look earlier in the verse. And so these guys come back from, or earlier in the chapter, these guys come back from this missionary trip and they're stoked and they say to Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says something really weird in verse 18. His response to them is, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Cool. <laughs> that, all right. We had a good trip. We had a good trip. We were successful. Uh, who is this guy? I mean, who says things like this? We've got to get real about this. Who is this Jesus that says things like this? This is one of those moments where our culture has this, this convenient way of saying, well, Jesus was, a, was, a, he was cool. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a, he was a, a moral uh, example, but you know, that was about it. But see, here's the problem with that, friends. We've talked about this before. Unless Jesus is God in the flesh, which is precisely what he is, and can say things like this, he's an absolute lunatic. You have to reject him or you have to bow to him because otherwise he says stuff like this and you're like, what is, what is this guy talking about? I mean, for real. And, and the scholar hears Jesus say this. And so let's go on. So Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from lightning, fall like lightning from heaven. And he goes on in verse 19, behold, I've given you authority to tread on, on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Don't don't be super stoked in the power that I have given you. Be stoked in the fact that your names are recorded in heaven. And so now Jesus is saying something that would lead you to believe that he seems to think he has some knowledge about whose name is and is not written in heaven, which is exactly what the scholar comes to him with. A question about eternal life. Jesus is saying things that this scholar is hearing and it's piquing his interest. Verse 21, Jesus goes on to say, at that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. And a scholar goes, I'm wise and intelligent. I'm a scholar. I'm a professional. I'm a teacher. I'm a leader. Hidden from me? <laughs> Who is this homeless rabbi think he's talking about? And Jesus goes on to say, all these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Imagine this scholar for just a moment. He's hearing this. He's hearing Jesus say this. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I've given you power, but don't be stoked in that. Be stoked about heaven. Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. You revealed them to children. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except for the Son. And he's very clearly referring to himself, which is blasphemy in this scholar's mind. 
We see it all over the New Testament. Jesus was getting in trouble all the time because he was saying things like, I and the Father are one. The Father is working till now and I am working. They try to kill him in John 8 because he flat out says, before Abraham was, I am. And I used to think that was just bad English, but Jesus is taking the name Yahweh. He's taking the name from Exodus chapter 3. He's saying, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I, have, I am eternal. I always have been. I was never created. I always will be and they picked up stones to throw at him. All of this is at play here. Jesus is saying things that, does, that do not sit well with this scholar, this, this, this professional of the Old Testament. It's not sitting well with him. And the reason why I believe that the scholar heard Jesus say all this is because Luke takes the, takes the ink and the, and the space on his, on his skins to point out that in verse 23 he says, and now turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things that you see and did not, and wished to hear the things that you hear and did not. He's saying something, he's saying things in some sort of format where it can be overheard. There's some sort of public hearing that's going on here. People are eavesdropping, and then he turns privately and says those last two verses to his disciples. This scholar is not happy with Jesus. He comes to Jesus with cynicism. He comes to him with questioning. He asks a good question, and it sounds respectful enough. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Luke tells us that this guy's heart was wicked. He was testing Jesus. He was coming at him with skepticism. Because everything that Jesus had just said doesn't sit right with this guy. And that's not to mention Jesus himself admits in Matthew chapter 11 that the people had given Jesus a reputation of being a bit of a floozy. Remember in, in, in Matthew 11, he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, John the Baptist came not eating and not drinking. And you all say that he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. And you say, there goes a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus was not a glutton and a drunkard. He was a friend of everybody. He tried to be. He was close with those who were the riffraff of society, to be sure. But he never sinned in word, thought, or deed. And yet, people tried to pervert his reputation and say that he was this, this floozy, this false teacher, this drunkard, and this guy who was out of control. And so just for a minute, put yourself in this scholar's shoes. Here's a guy who's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He's got a, he's got a posse that are all fishermen and tax collectors and ragamuffins and scallywags and they stink and their hair's unkept and he wanders around everywhere. And he's gonna say that the things of knowledge, that the things of the Lord are hidden from the intelligent, hidden from the educated, hidden from the wise. Who is this guy? He comes at Jesus cynical. He comes at him probably a little perturbed he comes to test him and I want to point that out because I wonder if there's some of you this morning who have an idea of Jesus but you don't know who he really is but because of your idea of him you come at him cynical maybe you're sitting in here this morning with your arms crossed and your attitude is essentially like Jesus yeah what's he got to say to me wise and intelligent we consider ourselves quite wise and quite intelligent. But what I love is that Jesus hears him out. Jesus engages with him. Jesus knows that this guy's not actually asking the question, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. Jesus knows that this guy has cynicism. He knows that this guy is coming to test him. And I love what Jesus does, and there's so much happening here. Jesus says to the man, what's written in the law? How do you read it? You're a professional. You're a scholar. You're a teacher of these things. How do you, how do you see uh, the Old Testament interpreted? And the guy quotes the Shema. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so there's a couple of things happening here that are actually quite fascinating. One, on one hand, Jesus knows that this guy's coming this guy's coming to him with some sort of skepticism, some sort of doubt. He's trying to accuse him. He's trying to, he's trying to get him caught up. He's essentially trying to commit some sort of like intellectual this assassination. He's tr- like, if we could just get Jesus to say something contradictory, if I could get him caught up, if I could get him stumped, then we don't have to pay attention to him anymore. He can just be that crazy guy wandering around in his sandals, and we don't have to listen to him. But it never happens. They try again and again and again, and Jesus subtly and brilliantly just tears the rug right out from underneath this guy out of love to show him his error, to show him his wrong thinking, to show him that his cynicism is unwarranted. Jesus gets him to quote the Shema, backing him into a corner. Now the guy answers his own question and proves, Jesus proves that he's not up to anything. He's not coming with some new doctrine. He's not coming with some new teaching or new philosophy or new faith. The guy asks him a question. This Old Testament scholar comes to Jesus with a question, and Jesus refers him right back to the Old Testament. He's not up to anything new. He's not up to anything weird. He's not up to anything heretical. Sorry, scholar, you failed on that one. And he answers his own question. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, all of your strength. And the other thing that this points out, and this is something that I've, that I, is troublesome to me because I was not aware of this for years in the church. I honestly thought growing up that if I, if I understand the data, if I, if I can download the information and agree with it, or even believe that it's true, then I'm saved, right? You tell me that Jesus came to die for my sins, you tell me that I'm a sinner, you tell me all of these things that are true to the gospel, and as a, as a child, I went, okay, like, I, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure it is. So, what's for lunch? You know, like I said, I was it. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true, but I don't care. It didn't affect me at all. I wasn't in love with Jesus. And this guy proves it. He's got a head full of Bible. He's got an entire education full of Bible. He's a scholar, which would have put him in a position of leadership, and yet he comes to God in the flesh, arrogant, cynical, hypocritical. He's trying to catch him. He's trying to find a way to assassinate Jesus, at least his reputation. We don't need to listen to this guy because watch what I'm about to do. His head full of knowledge did not cleanse him of his sins. He was not saved. And I, and, I, and I wonder again how many of us sit in the pews week after week after week with a head full of Bible, but we have no relationship with the risen Christ. And it's not, I can't, I can't say that that's you or that it's who, I, you have to ask yourself this. The Bible tells us to, to get real about this, to really ask ourselves. I was terrified when I first word, when I first read the words, even the demons believe and shudder. I thought, oh man, it's more than just intellect. 
There's more to it than that. It's actually loving and trusting this Jesus who is God. And so Jesus, in the process, cuts this guy a little bit. He welcomes him. He talks with him. He engages with him. He doesn't shun him. He doesn't push him away. He doesn't say, I know what you're up to, buddy. He talks to him, and he, re- and he reveals his error, and he cuts him a little bit and gets this guy to, to quote the Shema and gives him an impossible standard. The Shema is impossible. Love the Lord your God with all your soul and strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it, it seems like maybe this guy, this, this scholar, thought, okay, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm loving, I'm loving the Lord with every ounce, every, every fiber of my being, all of my energy, all of my resources, every breath is in some way, shape, or form worshiping Father God every day without fail, always. I have, never, I have never faltered in that once. It seems as if the rich young ruler fell into the same, the same dupe. Jesus said, same question. The guy said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus named some commands from, from the Ten Commandments, and the guy was like, yeah, all of those, done, bingo. <laughs> no, you don't understand. You don't understand, but this guy seems to be making the same error. But when it comes to loving his neighbor, he does what we all do, does he not? We come to a portion of scripture in the Bible and that we don't like or we don't agree with, and we go, well, does it really say that? Let me look at the Greek. Let me, then, then, we, then we bust out all of our commentaries. Then we bust out all of our Greek and our Aramaic and our Hebrew, and we try to do judo with scripture and try to find a way to, get, to convince ourselves that scripture doesn't say what it says. Well, fornication isn't just sex before marriage, period right? That's not what Paul was talking about. That's not what the Bible says. When Jesus said the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father, there is no other way except through him, you know, maybe that word means something different. Maybe we translated that incorrectly. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, does monogenes actually mean? We do this, do we not? We, We find a part of scripture that we don't like and we try to cut it down. We try to dilute it. We try to make it fit our expectations, our preferences. And that is exactly what this guy does here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He falsely, arrogantly, he's like, yeah, okay, got it, probably, you know, I'm doing pretty good there. But what does neighbor mean, Jesus? What's the, what's the Hebrew word for neighbor? What's the Greek, what's the English word for neighbor? What does neighbor mean? He's trying to tone down the law. He's trying to find out what is the very bare minimum that I can do to earn my way into God's good graces. Surely you don't mean anything more than Israel, ethnic Israel, maybe, maybe hopefully even just like the elite of ethnic Israel, like me, not the poor and blind and crippled, not the orphans and widows, but the elite, hey, people get out of our way when we walk into the room. They give us the best seats in the house. Those guys, sure, I love, I love them. It's easy to love them. Who is my neighbor? Leviticus 19.18 says to love, to love your neighbor. And it seems as if over the course of time, Leviticus 19.18 got morphed into love your neighbor or love, love your neighbor and to hate your enemy because it's the exact thing that Jesus brings up in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? 
Let's be realistic here. Let's not be over the top. Let's not be too dramatic. And so Jesus tells him a story. You want to know who your neighbor is, huh? You want to know who you should be looking after, who you should be loving. Every ounce of energy that you spend, every, every detail that you, that you look at for your own comfort, your own life, your own well-being, your own sustaining, all of that energy, do that to others. Who's the others? Who's the neighbor? Jesus says, well, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now this, I, always, I actually always wondered this, and I didn't take the time to research it until just this last year or so. Jerusalem is in the south, and Galilee is in the north, and Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee, and there's all these references to Jesus going up to Jerusalem, and I was like, that's kind of weird, because he's going south, but I just didn't know my geography. This isn't, this is, I mean, Jesus isn't just making things up here. He's saying a man's going from Jerusalem down into Jericho because it's literally a down, it's a, it's a hill. It's a, it's a hill that goes down. It's a hill that goes up. Jericho sits at 1,300 feet below sea level. It's incredible. 1,300 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem sits at 2,300 feet above sea level. So it is a steep climb. It's not an easy it's not an easy travel. And we're told in history by Jerome, who's a the theologian who wrote the Latin Vulgate, for those of you who know who he is, Jerome tells us in the pages of history that this road is a very well-known, very well-traveled, very popular road that everybody knew about, and it was nicknamed the Red Road because it was covered in blood. It could be translated the Bloody Way, is what they called it. And it's because bandits, and robbers, and thieves, and riffraffs, and gangbangers were always knocking people out, taking their money, taking their clothes, and leaving them dead or half dead. It happened all the time. And so what Jesus is bringing up here is nothing that's really all that random. He's telling a story that these, that these listeners have every understanding of. They understand the context. They, they completely get what Jesus is saying. A man went from Jerusalem down into Jericho, and he got jumped. And he was beaten and he was left for half dead. He was robbed. So who's this guy's neighbor? This scholar's listening. Every word that Jesus says, who's this neighbor? We're talking about a neighbor. So now Jesus is talking about a guy getting beat up. Well, a priest, a priest shows up. A priest happened to be going down on that road. And he saw him. And he passed by on the other Side. Now, I may not need to say this. This might be one of those details that it's like, dude, it's a parable, relax. But I read a lot of, I've read the, the words of a lot of dead people that were saying, you know, this parable doesn't really make sense because it's, it's, it's completely understandable that this priest would leave the guy there half dead. Because if the priest touched him, he's got bodily fluids coming out all over the place. He's, he possibly could die whenever this, whenever this priest is helping this guy up, and then he's defiled, he's touched a dead body, and there's a whole purity thing that's going on there. Um, and I think, well, chill, it's a parable. But Jesus does say, notice this, he says that the priest was going down the road, not up. And so people that are paying really close attention will say, well, no, Jesus knows what he's talking about still. He's talking about a road that really existed, and he's talking about a demographic of people that actually 
did this. They went up the road to spend their month in the temple doing their work where they could not be defiled, but coming down, sure, he would have been defiled and it would have been inconvenient, but he wouldn't have spent a couple of weeks off the job. He's going down the road. The point is, what Jesus is saying in the parable is he could have helped. He should have helped. We are expecting that if anybody, a priest, who's in the business of helping hurting people, should help a guy, his fellow countrymen, his own kinsmen, who's been beaten and left for dead. Who's my neighbor? Well, it should have been a priest. Duh. That's the point. That's what we're supposed to say is, oh, yeah, the priest. Like, that's low-hanging fruit. But the, peace, the, the priest just, the priest peaced out. <laughs> the priest took off. And the scholar's probably going, all right, you know, this guy's been saying weird things all day, but let's keep listening to what he's going on about. And then a Levite. Oh, a Levite. Good news. A Levite shows up. A Levite who also was a minister given to the care of hurting people shows up. You can read all about the duties of the priests and Levites in Numbers chapter 3. You can write that in your, in your notebook. Go, go read Numbers chapter 3 and you can read all the things that these guys were responsible for. A Levite shows up, a neighbor, a Jewish man, a countryman, a kinsman, a family member shows up, sees this guy half dead and goes by on the other side. Who is this poor guy's neighbor? The priest would have been an obvious choice. The law, the Levitical law says to even love a sojourner that's passing in your midst. How much more one of your own countrymen? Who is this guy's neighbor? And then Jesus throws a curveball. And this is brilliant. Listen to this. But a Samaritan was on a journey and came upon him, verse 33. And I wonder, I wonder if just for a brief moment, the scholar listening to this story went, that half-dead Jew is about to be a full-dead Jew. Because if, if I was lying dead, half-dead in the dirt, and a Samaritan came by, I know that would be it. Who, who wouldn't? What Samaritan wouldn't take advantage of this? What, what Samaritan wouldn't just kick this guy while he was down and take anything that he might have had left and maybe just stomp on his head as he was going down the road? Because the, Samaritan and the, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And maybe you're not familiar with Jewish history, and I'm not going to do a deep dive in this, but this, this hatred, this racism between Jews and Gentiles went back hundreds and hundreds of years, generations and generations of amorous and hatred between these two people groups. And it was so bad that the Jews considered the word Samaritan a racial slur. And in John chapter 8, Jesus is going and he's in this back and forth with some of the religious leaders. And they get fed up with him and they say, well, you're just a demonic Samaritan. It's like it wasn't enough to say that he was a demonic Jew. They had to throw in the racial slur as well. This is not new to us, friends. This is a problem of human evil and sin. The racism was, was thick. In, in Luke, even in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is passing from Galilee down and up to Jerusalem, and he passes through Samaria, and it says that the Samaritans rejected him because the stated reason in Scripture is they rejected him because he had his sights set on Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem, passing through Samaria, and they were like, kick rocks, homie. They told him to leave because he was going to Jerusalem, their enemy. They hated one another. And so imagine this story. 
Imagine you're this scholar. You've already got mixed reviews about Jesus. You don't really know how to categorize him. You don't know what to expect anymore. He's not the Messiah that you thought was coming. And now he's telling this story about a Samaritan coming and finding this Jewish man half beaten, beaten and half dead on the ground and must have thought for a moment, boy, that Jew's done for. But what happens? The Samaritan came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. Now, this is brilliant. Imagine this. Jesus is so subtle, and this is a subtle point. It's so easily missed, but I think it's one of the most powerful points in this, in this, in this sermon, in this parable. I think it's the most rich things that Jesus does. Because imagine, if you will, if, if, this, if this scholar, this expert in the Old Testament was listening to Jesus tell this story, and the story went something like this. There was a Samaritan who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he got beat up, and he was left for half dead. And then a Jewish guy came by and helped him. This scholar would have been like, stupid. What kind of story is that, man? No good self-respecting Israelite would ever help one of those, as they called them half-breed dogs. That's what they called them. I mean, we're not, we're not dealing with kid stuff here. These people hated each other. And Jesus is smacking that racism in the mouth. He's ending it. And he puts this, notice, he puts the Samaritan in the place of power. It's the Jew who's lying on the ground. It's the Samaritan who's in a place to actually help the Jewish guy out. This guy is eviscerating, Jesus is eviscerating this guy's racism while he's telling him the good news of the gospel simultaneously. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. He puts this guy in a corner again and forces the guy to admit, if even just to himself at the moment, if I was left for dead on the bloody road, I would want a Samaritan like that to come my way. Yeah, I gotta say that. I don't like to say it, but I got to say it. Praise God. It's a brilliant move. It's a subtle and brilliant move. Who is your neighbor? Your enemy. Who is your neighbor? Whoever you come into contact with, whoever you cross paths with. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, race, creed, color, whatever, whatever other division we like to, to throw around. It don't mean nothing to him. He loves people. And we, as his people, need to love people. And we all know that 2020, 2021, 2022 has given us a dozen and a half, at least, more reasons to find polarizing distinctions between us and somebody else. Politically, economically, the whole COVID thing made people mad at each other, man. And Jesus says, that person you're mad at, we'll deal with that, but that person is your neighbor. This Samaritan risks everything. He stops. He helps this Jewish guy who's laying half dead. The bandits could still be around. The thieves could still be lurking. They could still be casting an eye on that trail. And this guy doesn't stop. Whatever, wherever it is that he's going, whatever resources it is that he has, which are limited because he's in the middle of traveling, he stops and he risks it all, his own health and wellness, and he helps this guy. He is this Jewish man's neighbor. His enemy is not his enemy. We just think that we have enemies. Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate. I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. 
I used, to have, I used to live in a house of people that would say that regularly. I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. It wasn't true. It just sounded noble. Jesus actually does that. And he's telling us to be those people. It's beautiful. And so he goes on and picks the guy up. He helps him out. He puts him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And then he leaves himself open to extortion and being taken advantage of. He, he bandages him up, he brings him to an inn, and he took two denarii, and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. I mean, how, how stoked would you be if you were a conniver and, you know, pro, you know not not monetarily well off and somebody just showed up and was like here's this guy who got beaten I'm gonna bail for a month when I come back just give me the bill be like well Netflix and Hulu and graham crackers and that bottle of Patron and that t-bone steak dinner and with all the trimmings like yeah that's the that's the bill for the month like this this guy's putting himself in a position to be grossly taken advantage of and he takes the chance anyways do we do this do we do this for one another let alone people that are like Christians y'all are stupid you're our enemies. Do we do this for one another? This is so challenging. It's so hard. This is such a hard parable. It's a hard word. It's convicting on multiple levels. But this is the picture that Jesus paints. This is the story that he tells. And he asks in verse 36, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Verse 37, I, I wonder. It just seems like it seems like this scholar just can't even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is an impossible standard, friends. This whole thing began with, how do I inherit eternal life? Still a fair question. Regardless of what this scholar believed or didn't believe, his cynicism, or whatever happened to him in history, we'd never hear from him again. But it started with the right question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And what Jesus is saying here is you can't, you can't earn it. I'm going to give you an impossible standard. You will not be able to do this. And we think, well, that's not fair. But here's the thing. And I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, that Jesus is... There, there are guys that, that, uh, that, comment, that write commentaries on this this parable, and every little thing, it's like, they, they, com- they, they write the commentary like this. It sounds like this. The, the Jewish man laying in the road, that's us. And the Levite and the priest are the law. They can't do anything for our state. They can just reveal, like, they just kind of reveal that we're in the state that we're in. And then the Good Samaritan comes by, and that's Jesus, and he puts us in his place, that is on his animal, and he pours oil and wine, that is the, that is the blood and, the, and the, the anointing of the Spirit, and leaves us in the inn, that is the church, and that Christ will one day return like this guy will one day return. I think there's a lot of similarities there. I think that's, I think that's like fair. All right, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's what Jesus is doing, because what Jesus did was, in fact, so much greater, so much greater. This Samaritan stumbles upon this Jewish guy and at the risk of his health, the risk of being beaten, the risk of being stripped and robbed, he takes care of this, of this Jewish guy. But Jesus came to us on purpose. He did not stumble on us. He set his face like flint. He was determined to go to the cross for our sakes, to bear the punishment of our sins. It's an incredible, and it was guaranteed. The Samaritan was risking 
everything. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew it. It was guaranteed. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, famous sermon, he says this was the preordained plan of God from all time. Jesus knew that it was going to happen. He came after you. And we aren't half dead. We're dead, dead, spiritually. We are dead to affection for Christ. We are dead to his law. We are dead to, to loving him. We don't seek him. We don't know him. We don't want him. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says that the wages of that sin is death. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And Jesus in his love came to give us life, not to just bring us back into health or help us get back into shape. He came to give us life. This story, in part, it, is, it eviscerates our own righteousness and leads us to the one who did everything for us. Can we, can we do this every day? Can we love God with every fiber of our being at every moment and love even our enemies with this much self-sacrifice at every living moment? No, we're, we're, it's impossible. And that's part of what Jesus is saying. Whenever he, whenever he says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. <laughs> he, he's offering this guy an opportunity to go, I can't do that. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And this scholar could have taken Jesus up on that offer right there. But instead, he just tries to pull the rug out from Jesus again and be like, well, who's my neighbor? What does the Bible really say? It doesn't really say that. Friends, we can't do it. And God in his grace has ordained that we don't have to. Jesus did it for us. Jesus did it for us. And he he. He paints this picture. He tells us this story. He tells us this parable. And doesn't just sort of stand back with his arms and go, all right, well, that's the standard. So chop, chop. He was in the process of doing this his, in very, his very self. He was doing this in that very moment. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So that we could become this. Can you believe that? Colossians 1 says that we are pure, holy, blameless, and above reproach because Jesus gives us his righteousness. He came to earth. He took our punishment on the cross. He rose from the dead three days later. He really is God in the flesh who loves you and is offering you that righteousness, that perfect record, as a gift. You can't do this. It's a gift. Just take it. And slowly over time, you will become more and more like this Good Samaritan. We will become more and more like Jesus when we are born again, whenever he removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, which means a soft heart, a heart that is soft towards Christ, a heart that is affectionate towards the things that are righteous, pure, perfect, and pleasing, the things that are God-like, the things that are Christ-like. We more and more and more will want to be like this. We'll never be perfect at it, but Jesus was perfect for us. Amen. He was perfect for us. One of the ways that I see this the most clearly, you know, this is mind-boggling. I'll, I'll close with this point. Jesus came and was this for us. Hey, buddy. Is this something I said? Jesus, Jesus came and was this for us. And one of the most poignant places where I see this, and again, it's, it's subtle, but one of the most epic, mind-blowing places where I see Jesus loving us this way 
is in the upper room the last night that he was with his disciples here on earth. And this is, the, this is the picture. So John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all those chapters are the same on the same night and, and beyond that, but those are, those are kind of a hunk that's known as the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer. And in that story, Jesus is away from the crowds. He's out of the public eye. He's in a room with his 12 disciples. It's just him and the 12, and they're having dinner. And it's an evening filled with love and with promises, and Jesus washes all of their, all of their feet. And then... It's during that dinner, Jesus at this point in his ministry is a wanted man. There's actually a warrant out for his arrest. And Jesus, during this dinner, points out and finally says, one of you here at this table is going to betray me. And we all know that it was Judas. But when you read that story, Jesus says that, one of you will betray me. And it's amazing because the disciples start looking at each other like, not, is it, it's not me. Lord, is it me? It's not me, right? Nobody knew who it was. It was Judas. I mean, Judas was one of these 70 that went out and was doing all of this ministry work for Jesus. Judas was one of these guys who had Old Testament in his head. Judas was in closer proximity. I'm so jealous of Judas, man. He, he got to camp with Jesus and make fires with him and cook fish. And, do it. and he's there at that very table about to betray him, and Jesus knows it, but nobody else does. And the easy takeaway, the low-hanging fruit, and the thing that everybody always says is, wow, Judas was a really good manipulator. Judas was a really good liar. Judas was a really cunning deceiver nobody suspected him nobody knew it was him he had i mean he was in charge of the money he even had an elevated position in the in the crew nobody knew it was him wow what a good liar judas was but i think what's even more powerful is that nobody knew it was judas because yes he was a good liar fair enough but nobody knew it was judas because also jesus was never treating judas any differently Think about that. For three years, day in and day out, Jesus knew this was going to happen. In John 6, much earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says to the 12, he says to them, did I not choose all 12 of you and one of you is a devil? Jesus knew it and he never treated Judas any differently. If the upper room discourse read something like this, Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and Peter said, I bet it's, I bet it's, uh, I bet it's the guy that Jesus is always mad at. Have you ever noticed that he's got a chip on, like Judas isn't allowed to do anything. He doesn't like Judas, I bet it's Judas. Nobody said that. Jesus never treated his own betrayer any differently than he treated the rest of the 11. That is a powerful, that sunk into my head so deep. That's what our Jesus is like for us. And the division between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, as great as it was, it's nothing compared to the division between almighty, righteous, thrice holy God, Yahweh, our Lord, and us. But God so loved the world, he sent his only son, so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He takes your sins, he forgives them, and he gives you eternal life, perfect righteousness in its place. And we start to live that out here. We will not ever be perfectly the Good Samaritan. We will not ever be this story, but we will be more and more like this story, more and more like Jesus as we come to understand more and more how much he gave for us. Amen? Amen. Bow with me as we close in prayer.